Howie. You're always up and about, Howie. Mm. Duck. How did we get there, Duck? Triple M's winter breakfast. Woo, I like it. Winter breakfast. Triple M, Mark Howard, Wayne Carey. Three minutes after six, we're just sort of chatting away in our own world there, Duck, and all of a sudden <laughs> it's time to talk on the radio. Nearly lost it. We did. A lot coming up on the show uh, today. It, it's hump day. It is. It is. Do you feel that? I I do feel it. I've, I've always felt that uh, Wednesday, if you don't like your job, you get over Wednesday and you just go, the week's nearly over. If you like your job, you don't probably worry about it as much. Since we've been doing breakfast radio, I'm really <laughs> You're looking feeling forward. Hump day. To, I'm looking forward to getting over Hump Day because we're out, we're then on the home straight. It's like going for a a five k run, mm. and you you go through a couple of pain barriers, and you get part. But once you get past the two and a half k, so you run out two and a half on your way home. You know you're on your way home, and you just kick. What you, you find something? What's the worst job you've ever had? Have you ever done a bad job? You, you haven't really lived a typical life. Well, yes, I have. I've uh, well, no, I haven't. Um, you're right. I've had a when I uh, I worked for Sands and McDougal. I'm not sure they're around anymore. What it's old Sands sta- McDougal do? Stationery company. Right. Um, would it be fair to say that I took long breaks in the uh, morning tea and, right. and got in? A, what was your role down there? My role, I, I was actually, in the end, I, I worked in an area where I was giving out um, typewriting ribbons and all the computers. It <laughs> sounds like a hump day job to me. <laughs> it's a real hump day job. Don't worry about that. I used to go down in the back corner of the warehouse. I uh, didn't have to go to the warehouse, but go down in there and just sort of hide in the cardboard boxes and have a snooze. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a hump day in the, job. In the middle of the mor- a massive hump day job, especially when you get half an hour I feel sorry for all those people out there that have jobs that only get half an hour for lunch. How do you fit in your lunch? How do you even, by the time you even, if you've got to go and buy your lunch, not mm. everyone can sit up the night before and pack it, but if you've got to go to a, a, a shop or a, you know, a coffee shop or a bakery or wherever it is that you want to eat, there's a little bit of a lineup. By the time you've got your lunch, You've hardly got time to eat it. And then you've, you've got a full tummy. You've got to get back into work. What about the poor punters that, uh, Rosie, and good morning to you, have to sit at the cubicle uh, where they are doing their work in front of the computer while they have their lunch? Oh, and your sandwich gets in your keyboard. Uh, it's all yeah. sorts of I, 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 There are some tough I, – I, I think it should be mandatory that you have – everyone has an hour for lunch. Well, that's a good a platform as I've heard in the last eight weeks of the election campaign. Vote yeah. one duck, one hour for lunch. Mandatory one hour. I, 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 yeah, I don't mind. I've had uh, some real bad jobs. I, the worst job I've ever had, which was a real, I used to get hump day by Tuesday morning. It was that bad. <laughs> I, I had a job for a while out in the western suburbs. It was a tyre company where it was a part-time job. Um, recycled tyres would come in and they'd retread them. And then it was my job to pick up a sponge, get a tyre, put it on this rotating thing, pick up a sponge, put it in some black dye, hold the sponge against the tyre while the tyre spun round to make it black again. <laughs> So you do, I don't know, that is, that 700 tyres a day. And you have to think a lot for oh, that. Hair. And it'd get to quarter past nine and you'd had enough. The best thing that ever happened at that joint, one day there was a fire and we all got to leave at lunchtime. Best thing ever. Brilliant. Yes, so hump day. Normally we get Nicole Gunn in for three things mm-hmm. you need to know on your way yep. to work, but they say a change is as good as a holiday day. Yeah. We've got Sarah Patterson in here this morning. Hello, Hello Pato. Sarah. I'm the sub. Hello. You are. Before you start, what's the worst job you've ever had? Oh, look, I worked in a, um, in a pizza parlor where, um, I was deemed unfit to, um, handle the cash register and I ended up 
washing dishes out the back, but the worst job was um, having to pip the olives into this giant plastic. Oh. Olive pipper? Yeah. What do you get paid to be an olive pipper? Not very much. Okay. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> at least you didn't say news at Triple M. What have you got for us, Sarah? Well, three things you need to know. Mm. First thing, uh, we had a, a bomb scare of sorts, Noble Park. The bomb squad was called there yesterday afternoon after they pulled over a uh, four-wheel drive being uh, driven by a woman. They found a homemade suspicious device inside. Um, it caused some traffic chaos in the area while well, they, they cleared everything out and they mm. safely detonated the device last night. So all clear. Good result. It is a good result. Okay. Bomb, first story, second story. Second thing you need to know is uh, front page of the Herald Sun this morning. There's been an uh, interesting twist. You may have um, heard the news that uh, a man was arrested over the alleged assault of three children at a Broadmeadows home on Monday night. Now, the Herald Sun is reporting that man is also being questioned over the murder of a woman whose body was found at uh, Dallas dump there last month. Uh, this man, who's 34 years old, Bassam Rad, was also acquitted uh, on terrorism charges back in 2008. Wow. Mm. Well, there's not much we can add to that. No. No. Um, Golly, yeah, it's, uh, go on, bring us something nicer, Pato. <laughs> something, no, what about election update? Is that nice? Well, yep. if you can tell us who's the Prime Minister, you, then you are a very good news operator because no one else can at the moment. Uh, do I get a prize? Yep. Yeah. Who do you think it's going to be? Yeah, no, I don't have ESP. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm saying the same as everyone else. I would say hung Parliament at this stage, but we're being told at least there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We might see a result by this Friday. Friday? Though some strategists say Vote it again. could be as late as the end of next week. So is it right. still a possibility that we vote again? Yeah, well, if you absolutely. listen to Bill Shorten, it is. Absolutely. It is. I yep. reckon we've, I, I, I would like, I know people out there probably wouldn't because it's a, a pain, but I'd like to vote again. Why? What's Why? it going to achieve? Because what's it going to achieve? Mm. Because I think when you get a situation like this, clearly people, there, I reckon there are a lot of people that thought it might go one way or the other and they don't go and vote. This will make people actually get off their bottoms and say, okay, this is what I want really and go think and do about it. it. Exactly. Mm, Groundhog Day. Would, would you say, Pato, who would you say is winning the PR war from a news point of view since Saturday night in the election? To be perfectly honest, I mean, it's certainly neither Shorten nor Turnbull, but I think um, Pauline Hanson's getting a heck of a lot of <laughs> traction uh, at the minute, but oh, also the gee. Xenophon uh, team. Um, and I think people have certainly made their feelings clear as they're um, how, um, how disengaged they're feeling with the, the major parties. Are they sending a sign? But Am I the only person that sort of thinks about what other people, you know, other presidents and prime ministers of other countries think of our No, I know you're big minister. on it. They think because we're a bit of a joke, do you don't think, they? you know, Bill, and I don't know Bill, but little mm. Bill Shorten sort of strolling up to mm. Hillary or Donald over in America saying, I'm the well, let's hope, it's not, let's hope it's not Donald. It's just not, it just doesn't portray strength. To I me. thought it was interesting that uh, John Howard uh, appeared yesterday and he said, now let's not uh, let get, get ahead of ourselves. Let's not slit our throats. <laughs> no, I did hear Johnny say that. <laughs> I did hear that. Um, <laughs> were you telling us a sort of political update or was that it, Pato? No, that was pretty old. Did we, 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 we'd not got into the uh, seats and so forth. As of late last night... Um, coalition had 68 seats. We know that 76 is the magic number to form a majority government. We say that Labor can depend on 67. So Malcolm Turnbull saying he still thinks there's a slim chance that he can still govern with a majority government. But uh, it's looking 
less likely as time goes on. So you know, Steve Waugh, this is a, a tenuous link. Steve Waugh had a scenario when he was made the Australian cricket <laughs> captain, uh, Pato, and they went to Sri Lanka and he had an incident where he ran into Jason Gillespie. Gillespie broke his leg. Steve Waugh had his nose plastered across his face. And at that point, they'd had a West Indies tour and they'd struggled a bit. And Steve Waugh came out after that and said, I've had some time to reflect. I've been listening to so many people around me. Advice on this and advice on that. I've decided from this day that I'll be my own man and my own leader. If Malcolm Turnbull becomes Prime Minister, personally, that's what I'd like to hear. I'd like you to hear him say, like, I've made some mistakes, I've listened to left, right and centre, now I'm going to lead and govern as my own man, a la Steve Wall. Mm. What do you think about that, Pato? I, I think it's time we actually heard uh, from the leaders as uh, human beings mm. as opposed to politicians and perhaps inject yeah. a bit of their personality into their politics. I think if we learnt that they were as fallible as anyone else, mm. we would be a little bit more attracted to what they had to say. So Great call. Yeah. Well, Pato, pretty sharp. Yes. First like time it. on winter breakfast won't be the last. Well, yeah, I'm back tomorrow. There you go. I told you, wouldn't <laughs> we? Thanks to Sarah Patterson. Now, I'm going to bring you up to date with my best newsreaders impersonation of what happened at Wimbledon and try and get the uh, international names out for you. Uh, Duck, good news if you're a Williams fan, either either, because both the Williams sisters are through to the semis at Wimbledon. Venus defeated Kazakhstan's Yaroslava Shvedova in straight sets, and Serena defeated Russian Anastasia Pavlichenkova in straight sets. Venus will now face Germany's Angelique Kerber, who defeated Simona Halep, and Serena will take on Elena Viznina, who defeated Dominika Sivulkova. It's, uh, what do you think of that lot? Well, it's been a while since the Williams sisters have met in a final. Don't about the we tennis. Know, we what know... did you think of my pronunciation? No, very good. Very good. Um, <laughs> that's, yeah. why, that's why I wasn't handed that sheet. It, it's been a long time. They used to obviously meet in a lot of finals uh, when they were younger, and there was at one point in time Venus... Uh, was uh, probably known as the better player. It and was then, always, is Serena going to be able to match her sister? Wow. Well, uh, I've just got here now. So the 10th time they'll meet in a major final if they get there. Yep. And Serena's won 7-2. So two. she leads 7-2. Yeah. It's an extraordinary achievement. People say, you were saying to me, well, well, sort big... of what's happened to Venus? And I was explaining to you that she'd had a, had a syndrome, almost, uh, I can't go into the full medical details, but it's almost like... Uh, what's the uh, tiredness one that Alistair Lynch had and Joe Griggs has had? Chronic fatigue. Almost like that type of system where she's had all sorts of problems with her autoimmune deficiency. So great to see her back there. So she plays in a semi. Serena's on the verge. I'll get the stats. She's on the verge of taking over Steffi Graf. I think she's right. She'll equal it. Equal it. 22 Grand Slam titles. Now she's fallen the last couple of hurdles and some people say it's because of that pressure. Mm. So if she got into the final against her sister, Mm. she has the ability to say, oh, you know... My sister, she's been through a tough trot. Do I, do I let or oh, throw it one year thing? Throw or, Wimbledon. You match, or you, or does or does the sister say this is a chance for you to match Steffi Graf? Either way, mm, I think Angelique Kerber might be the one that gets through to beat her. Who beat her, as you would know, as you watched it on Channel Seven uh, when she beat her at the Australian Open. Okay. By the way, it's all live and free on Channel Seven, so make sure you tune in. To Channel 7 to watch all the Wimbledon action. As a renowned tennis expert, at their best, Steffi, with 22 Grand Slam single titles, takes on Serena. Who's coming out on top, oh, you think? I love Steffi. <laughs> Steffi. We're not talking about who you love. We're talking about who you think will win. No, you think Steffi? I just love Steffi. I grew up with Steffi, but I think I think probably the game, the evolution of the game and the power of yeah. um, Serena, you probably, Serena maybe wins at their absolute peak, but... Uh, Steffi, Steffi was my first female tennis player that you sort of just sat down and watched and just loved every bit of it. 
The Agassi book, which we've both read open, uh, as I said to you yesterday, it's the best sports book I've ever read. And the first 30 pages is the best 30 pages of any sports book best I've ever read. But the discussion he has with his mates when he's trying to figure out how to ask Steffi Graf on a date and the nervousness that the man brings into the whole situation is just mm. absolutely he fantastic. Out, he uh, dated Barbara Streisand mm-hmm. before Steffi. Brooke Shields? Yeah. I'm not sure how we got on. Uh, now, listen. <laughs> Andy Murray, Hippie the Favourite now. He takes on Yo Wilfred Songer. And Federer? Federer takes on Marin Cilic. So you'd imagine Federer get the job done there. And then there's Burdich and Puel and Rainick and Query. Um, I, uh, more than anything, I would, I would love I would to love, see. Yeah, I would love, love us Federer, Federer Murray final. It happens in a semi. It oh, does it? In a oh, they semi, get. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, who do, who do you. Yeah. You want I, Roger I, to win? I actually want Roger to go on and win another do. Grand Slam. Of course, you well, Absolutely. But I like Murray as well. Yeah, no, I'm all about Roger. A lot of sport to get through, Duck. Ben Simmons, the young number one draft pick, played his first game for the 76ers in the Summer League against the Celtics yesterday. Did pretty well too, Duck. Finished with 10 points, 8 boards, 5 assists before coming off with cramp in both calves. Cramp? Mm. Well, it's only pre-season. That's exactly right. He's warming up. That's right. He'll be rested for today's match against the Spurs. He said it was good to get back on the floor for his first game since he was at LSU. And uh, said his calves are no problem. As you said, he's just warming up. Let's hear from Ben Simmons. Feels good you know, to be a part of the team, especially the Sixers. Um, you know, growing with them, uh, learning everyone's game, I think you know, it's a, fe- a special thing. And I'm looking forward to you know, the upcoming games. First time I cramped up, uh, you know, I didn't think it was going to be too bad. I just wanted to gather and contribute. And then you know, it hit me that, that second half. So uh, obviously you know, I came out. And uh, I think it's, you know, it's the first time I played in a few months. So I think it all just hit me. When he signed up for 20 over three years, 20 million-ish, how do you reckon the doctors go when they see him grab a calf on, yeah, on the first happens. day of the preseason? But most certainly doesn't sound Aussie. No. Does he? No. But uh, yeah, we'll claim him. We'll claim yeah. him. Yeah, well, he's, he's born and bred. He's got the American accent. That's it. Uh, Western Bulldogs coach Luke Beveridge says Tom Board will only be available for senior selection when the vibe is is right, I quote. The million-dollar Ford is serving a club suspension for a bit of a fight with teammate Zane Cordy when quizzed on whether the club was trying to cover up the altercation. Beveridge defended his comments regarding Boyd's availability over the past few weeks. Uh, not at all. Uh, as I said, we, were, we went through a process of finding out what actually happened. Um, as was mentioned in the release, there was alcohol involved. So, so it was a little bit vague, unfortunately, and that, that's what alcohol does to you. You know, if one of my kids played up, I wouldn't go and tell the neighbours. Um, I need to find out what actually happened and we'd keep it in-house. We don't, it's not ideal that you know, it came out um, a little bit of time after it happened. Couldn't agree more. Keep it in-house. No, that's exactly what I said uh, yesterday, the day before, when we discussed this, that uh, it's not... Uh, clearly, the alcohol was the part. If they weren't meant to be drinking, then that's where the sanctions come from. But in terms of the altercation between... Two, two guys, um, that, that should have been kept in-house. But clearly one came with a cut above his eye or below his eye. So mm. it's, it's, it's hard to keep in. But I, I agree. And, and uh, you know what? He's right. It's got to be – he's got to be accepted by that senior group and they've got to know that he's ready to come in. So I'm sure he's in uh, constant uh, consultation with that uh, leadership group. And Bob Murphy would be one of those because he's around the club now not playing, trying to come back to play. But – um, yeah, well said. Yeah, spot on. Jordan Lewis believes NBA-style free agency could easily become commonplace in the AFL. The AFL signed a new six-year, $2.508 billion broadcast rights agreement late last year, with average salaries reaching over 300000 for the first time this year and a new collective bargaining agreement currently being debated. It is expected that players will be given more of the ever-growing pie. 
that will see clubs be able to offer more money for free agents. And Jordan Lewis continued by saying he could see movement and a lot more of it than we currently get. That's probably the biggest task for clubs in the next 10 years is keeping players and keeping a group together. And that's why, I mean, culture and, and this sort of stuff is so important because at the end of the day, for some people, money talks. I'm really proud to play at one club and I understand that certain players would see it differently. Other players would see it as a business because some clubs are obviously run like a business and when your time is up, they're quick to show you the door. It's well, now I, I like I like what he said there, but uh, I'm I'm of the opinion, and I'm, I might uh, even write an article about this at some point in time, Howie. That if you keep a club together, and he talked about culture there, you look at the great teams over the last couple of, or the last say eight or nine years. Yep. Sydney have gone against it a little bit by bringing Buddy and and tip it in for massive money. So you know that's that's against the grain of what they had done previously when they won My their word. premierships. But the Hawks and the Cats, they don't have million dollar players. They don't, you know, they, they bought Danger in this year, but but my understanding is he came under Selwood, who's the captain of that footy club. So he fits into a structure. And you end up, you, you stay together, you get success on the ground, then that success, because of your success on the ground, goes on further after footy. So the Luke Hodges of this world and the Jordan Lewises and all of these Sam Mitchells, you know, Sam will go into coaching. Uh, you, you just get that vibe from him. He'll, he'll oh, 100%. Yeah, he'll, you talk to him about yeah, it. He'll be a senior coach and, 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 you know, Hodgie and Jordan will probably go into, you know, media and stuff like that. And they'll get that media work because they are four-time, maybe five-time premiership players. So it comes back to you tenfold if you get success as a team. And if. If you get success as a team. That's exactly right. And in, in terms of this percentage, you know, whether the player – I think the players deserve – what they get, I really do. But I, I get the feeling that the AFL are going to be uh, very, very strong on this. Well, it was a big sticking point last time, and obviously yeah. it will be the sticking point again a bigger, this time. A bigger sticking point this time, because I get the feeling the players are not going to back down, nor are the AFL. So, Well, now that the players see other sports gaining that, obviously cricket's got that in recent times. You, you look across at what your other athletes are doing, and if they're getting you think, well, I deserve a piece of it I, as well. I, I will, it's hard to argue with that. I will say, since the wages have been going up in AFL, it's not the top end that have necessarily been getting all the money. It's it's just the as you said the average wage is now three hundred thousand. That's the area where it's coming up, which you know I agree. And then you get rid of the rookies; they all of a sudden get paid what they're worth. Um, so for all of those reasons, I'm I'm for it. Duck, our next guest is the editor of the Melbourne Herald Sun's Insight Investigative Unit, and he's just brought out a book that fascinates me by the name of Busted. Remember when you saw all those pictures on the news yes, of the ecstasy yes. tablets in tomato yep, cans? Yep, yep. Well, Keith Moore has written an unbelievable book true about crime. it. True crime. You're a true crime yeah, uh, I do. reader. It fascinates me I, with what people get up to. Yeah, no, I, I love That's all I read, true crime. Hello, love. Keith. How are you? You couldn't make this stuff up, could you? No, true true you crime couldn't. is much more believable than the, peop- the yeah. stuff the chopper used to make up. Oh, it's <laughs> extraordinary. Tell us a little bit about the background of this story and the basis of your book, because it, it is a fascinating story, well, this look, one. It is difficult to imagine that little old Melbourne would be the place for not just this world's biggest ecstasy bust, but the previous world's biggest ecstasy bust of 1.2 tonnes was two years prior to this one. Wow. This one was 4.4 tonnes, 15 million pills. Calabrian Mafia were behind them both. The reason Melbourne was chosen that is that Australia is such a, a, a rich country that I, a, a, and sadly the youth of today love ecstasy more than the, the, the world's biggest users of ecstasy per head of population. We also pay a lot more for it here. It's right. about $30 a pill here, $6 in Amsterdam, 
That's why Calabrian Mafia send their pills to Melbourne. Tell us about the tomato cans, because that fascinates me. And tell me how this, how many kilos did you say? It was 4.4 tonnes. 4.4 tonnes. Yeah, so 15 how, million pills. How did it come unstuck? <laughs> well, they, they got a tip from Europe in that basically uh, they were very professionally packed, which means that the Calabrian Mafia must have access to a real tomato canning factory. In so was there tomatoes they, they in were, the cans? They were no, there was some gravel in some of the others in that right. this is how professional it was. They knew how much a container load of tinned tomatoes should weigh. And that's the first thing customs check is, is that, does Wait. that container weigh <laughs> what it should weigh? So they put gravel in some of the tins so that, it, so that the container did actually weigh the same as if it was fill, filled with tomatoes. Uh, they had a tip from the AFP in Europe that a big container load of drugs was coming in from somewhere. Uh, from Italy, uh, they didn't know what it was packed in. So basically they started x-raying a lot more containers than they normally do. When the massive x-ray machine honed in on one of these tins, it was obvious that it wasn't tomatoes in there. Right. Obviously ecstasy and gravel both look different to tomatoes, so they opened one of them up and lo and behold, there was the world's biggest ecstasy bust. And a street value of $440 million. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? It is. Yes, it's, uh, <laughs> we can see why these people get involved with that. So what happens when these guys get arrested? Well, look, it was actually 13 months after the pills were, were found because they had a tip-off that the pills had been found, so they never went to pick them up, which right. meant they couldn't be arrested. So it, the evidence was gathered over a 13-month period. And the AFP actually saved the taxpayer a fair bit of money in that they had to make mass arrests. It was 33 people arrested all on the same day, August the 8th, 2008. There happened to have been a big mafia funeral in Melbourne the day before, one of the Madaffrey family, Vincent. And a lot of the people were coming from Griffith, from Adelaide, from elsewhere that were going to need to be arrested. So the AFP said, why don't we just arrest them the morning after the wake at four o'clock in the morning? Uh, and, and Pasquale Barbaro, who was the Mr. Big from Griffith, who was uh, your typical mafia man, he, he married his cousin when she was 18 and they had four children. They had the big house in Griffith and he was supposedly a good family man. He also had a much younger blonde mistress, Sharon oh. Roper, set her up in a flat in, in Melbourne. That's where he used to stay whenever we came to Melbourne, which was quite a lot. And that's where quite a lot of his mates were staying the morning after the wake. Four o'clock in the morning, the police throw in what they call flashbangs. And if you've seen the footage of the Lint siege mm. and you see lots of noise and flashes, that's not actually gunfire. It's what they call flashbangs because that's what they do. They make a flash and a bang. And it scares everybody inside. When they went in, <laughs> the first person they saw was Sabrina Scarponi, who was the muscle. He's like, if you see a picture of him, he's a big, scary man. And he's the one that used to... Well, he was curled up in a fetal position and he had quite literally crapped himself, much to the, uh, the excitement of the AFP officers. They then went, it, it gets better, they then went to the master bedroom and there's Pasquale Barbara and Sharon Roper naked in bed. They wake them up at four o'clock in the morning. The surveillance cops had seen Sharon Roper every time they saw her in the surveillance footage. She was immaculately dressed, fancy handbags because she was the trophy mistress and Pasquale liked her, liked his women to look good. Of course, she didn't look particularly good this morning. She then started bawling her eyes out. So the AFP said, let's take her mugshot now. There was a picture in the book. She's got the zits on the face. She's got no makeup. Oh, she looks absolutely terrible. And she will hate that mugshot. Wow. Is there any fear in writing these books, the people you're writing about and the people that are still out on the street, for want of a better term, Keith? Oh, like Andrew Rule, I try not to think about it. Um, I like to think that, I mean, usually when you write about it, they've already been dealt with. It's not as though you're sort of exposing what they're doing before they're being charged with it because it would be very difficult legally to do that. So I just pray they'll leave me alone. Well, I think we're going to shift you out of here, Keith, uh, before anything else happens. Uh, the book is busted. We really we, we, appreciate We've it. had nothing to do with this book. No, no, <laughs> no. And nor do we recommend it, but it is a good read, Keith. Thank you.
Duck, you and I are usually in sync. We're normally in agreement about most things in life. We were not in agreement yesterday on what we thought of Nick Kyrgios in his press conference. If you haven't heard some of it, this is Kyrgios after he got smoked in straight sets by Andy Murray. You know, I've, I've previously said that you know, I, don't, I don't love the sport, um, but you know, I don't really know what else to do without it. So, you know, I obviously like playing the game. Um, it's a massive part of my life, but you know, I just I don't, I don't know. I don't know whether. You know, I don't, I don't really know. One week I'm pretty motivated to, to train and play and, you know, I'm really looking forward to getting out there. One week I'll just not do anything. And I don't really know a coach out there that would be pretty pretty down for that one. Like, to be honest, I woke up this morning and I played computer games. For instance, is that the greatest preparation? I don't know. But it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. It would be fair to say that I thought he was shattered because he thought he could go well against Murray and he was absolutely gutted that he hadn't been able to uh, perform at the level which he'd hoped to and he was shattered and it was raw. It'd be it was, fair to say uh, you were of the opinion. It was excuse-making and it was a defeatist attitude. I was reasonably strong on it. You were reasonably strong on it. John McEnroe was pretty strong on it and uh, he took your side. This is not doing our sport any good to go out and give it so he's giving 80 percent now and 85 wow that's whoa this is Wimbledon center court Wimbledon opening the newspapers today to be fair to say that 97 percent of the journalists that have written have taken your side of the equation it's, it's only because like I said because of his comments and there were contradictions through after the game and I know you're emotional after the game but he's He's now been doing this long enough, and he's still a young man, Howie, but he's been doing it long enough to understand that those sort of comments are going to rile people that, you know, love the sport. And, and He doesn't y- care, though. Y- he doesn't care about whether it riles. He's 21. He doesn't care what people think about him. Well, I, I beg to differ. I think he does. And I think that, uh, and, and as I said, I thought that whole press conference that he did after he lost to Murray was a contradiction. And, you know, there, oh, this it means a lot. Oh, no, you know what? I'm not sure what coach would put up with me not wanting to train. Well, that, in actual fact, what a coach does is that's what he does. He gets the best out of you. So maybe Nick should have a think about that. And he makes you want to get up and train that week that you don't want to get up. And then eventually, when you mature, then you don't, maybe then you don't need a coach because then you know exactly what you need to do to achieve what are great things. And, and you believe that he'll win a... He'll win a uh, a major. I do, and several. With that attitude, you think he'll win a major? No, I well, think he'll. I think he'll win just a major. Off natural talent. That, no, no, that's, stand that's by, mate. See, this is no, when you ask by. me a question and then you don't let, give me the app- uh, opportunity to answer. Agassi's attitude when he came into the sport compared to when he won a major, completely different things. So I'm saying that I think Kyrgios will win a major as a more mature, young professional tennis player. I don't think he's got the attitude at the moment to win a major, I think he will develop like we all do in life to the point where he's enough of a rounded citizen to win a major. Sport is littered with talented people that don't achieve. And I My think he'll be is. one of those. I hope you're wrong. I know. And, and I you hope, hope you're wrong, wrong too. I, I know. I'm wrong I know. Too. I know. I, I know you I'm do. Um, a lot to come after seven o'clock. We need to talk to Tom Carroll about, uh, he's got a new thing on a surfboard, which apparently keeps the sharks away. Well, if if he's got one of those, I'm that one. will be uh, that will sell like hotcakes. <laughs> That's right. And Bruce Cater, who will tell us all about his clients, uh, Matthew Delavadova and Andrew Bogut. And we're going to talk fashion as well, an area that we're not that strong on.
but we'll have a crack. I'm a little stronger than you on it. Well, I'm not sure with your sort of funny-looking <laughs> blue boat shoes you're rocking in at the moment with your golf top. But anyway, we'll discuss that after seven. Tom Carroll is joining us very shortly to talk about Shark Shield, which apparently keeps the sharks away, do well, well, talking about that, Geelong Addy yesterday uh, oh. had a, uh, well, the front page front had page. a picture of a great white shark. Mm. Now, having delved into that a little bit, at your favourite uh, spot, Point Impossible, where you surf all the mm. time, how did that make you feel? Well, for one, it wasn't a great white it was sighted, but I can understand why the newspaper took that approach. Well, yeah. hang on. Well, why did they if it wasn't a great white? Well, because it's, 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 it's sensationalism. It, the, the guy that saw the shark on Sunday, there's been reports, and the boys talk about it all the time, oh, I saw a shark here or might have seen a shark there. So it's been going on for about a month down there. But when you went down there recently, yes. there was an actual sign being yes. put up by yes. someone, not the council, just Local. by someone saying yep. that uh, there's been a shark sighting. Well, it doesn't exactly. How does put that you, make you feel? It doesn't put you in a great frame of mind when you're putting your wedding on a completely honest day. And you still went out. Well, you do, but it, it, it's definitely in your mind. But you know what the crazy thing about the sharks in the water is when you surf a fair bit. If I was going, and this is there's no reason for this. If I paddle out anywhere by myself, I always, always, always sit there and think about sharks. Same spot, same day with one other bloke, not ever in my mind. I, whether it's a security it's a thing, I don't know. Chance, well, yeah, especially, and I'm pretty skinny, so it's I've probably got, 75, gonna, 25 as say, well. I've got to admit, if I was a shark, I'd take one look at you and say, <laughs> well, there's not a feed here, and I'd probably go to the next bloke. You read all the, the things, and how many people... Uh, attacked by a shark each year compared to how many sharks are attacked by people. But that's a whole nother story. It's it's, 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 it's growing. It, it is, but it's so minimal. But I guess if you did get attacked, it's such a horrific way to go. I've seen sharks. I saw a shark once in a place called Half Moon Bay uh, in San Francisco, like a big shark, a great white shark. Um, and I saw a shark in Tonga once, uh, a mako shark, which was also a big shark. Um, it's frightening. It's you, the the jolt of adrenaline you get through your body. I've, I've seen a great white shark, but I was in a cage. <laughs> yeah, slightly different. Slightly different. I saw I saw the shark I saw in Tonga. We'll get to Tom Carroll short. The shark I saw in Tonga. Beautiful clear water there, and you're surfing maybe a kilometre offshore off a, off a little island on the break. And I was surfing with a bloke that owned the surf camp, his son and his daughter, and you could see this shark clearly because the water is so clear and it was coming towards us. And old mate who ran the shark uh, the the surf camp, he's like, "Quick, everyone, get together, get together, get together in a circle, stay here, get together." And his daughter turned around and said, "Screw this, Dad." Started paddling for the beach, and as soon as she said that, I was straight behind a duck. Oh, board. really? Next morning. Take off. Next morning, the surf was pumping. I mean pumping. There was no one out, and I looked at it for an hour and a half, and I pushed it, duck. I pushed it. <laughs> I didn't go out. This has got me up and about because we're about to introduce the two-time 83 and 84 World Surf Champion. Tom Carroll joins us on the line. Great to have you on, Tom. How are you? Oh, it's good to be here. Yeah, very well, thanks. Uh, watched 60 Minutes on Sunday night as a surfer with great interest and saw you out with the boys from Shark Shield. Tell us a little yeah. bit about what was contained in the story. Uh, I found it fascinating, Tom. Well, it's well. basically it was all about, um, you know, sh showing off what we've come up with with Shark Shield. Shark Shield's a proven, uh, you know, peer-reviewed um, device shark deterrent device which has been around the, the actual technology has been around for quite a while it's been used uh, for with divers uh and they did have a surfboard um device as well but it, it was just caused a little bit too much drag we wanted a, a device that actually didn't uh hamper the performance of the surfboard but it was also very effective in deterring the sharks and basically we're just creating a, a, an electrical fence 
uh, around us. So we, uh, you know, we just, any curious shark comes up and takes a little sort of, you know, wants to have a bit of a sniff around. Generally, that's what they're doing. Uh, and uh, because they don't, they don't really want us. They want fish. Mm. They want nice big fish, seals maybe if you're in their great white territory. Uh, turtles maybe if you're in the, in the tiger territory. But generally, sharks don't want humans. And so they just, you know, you just want to, deter them away from us so they don't come in for a little bit of a investigation <laughs> kind of nibble you know and that's what we're all about you know that's uh yeah Tom, that's the uh, that's the question, I guess. When this technology, and as you said, it's been around for a little while, but the uh, people have said, yes, it'll keep tigers away, it'll keep uh, you know, it'll keep grey sharks away, all this sort of stuff, uh, bull sharks, but not great whites. Is that now yeah. changed? I think that's changing right now, uh, but you know, to be honest, you know, the great white is is, is an very smart creature. It's known to you know. Uh, diversified strategies um you know on, on the moment so they're very very smart and uh and actually decoy you and so on but that said uh of course they're not really up for us up for us they're not really they don't want us they want something they want the the seal uh we just want to try and um create that sort of uh deterrent so they and which is showing to be very effective at the moment uh, with the great whites, and, and we're going to go fur, into further studies. So you know, we just need to keep working at it. Basically, we can't sort of, you know, stop working with uh, the situation and getting in there and testing further, further and further testing. Because really, the great thing about nature is, which is kind of you know beautiful in a way, is that is it's unknown. We we really don't know. Uh, sharks are beautiful creatures. We're getting to understand them better and better all the time uh and, and i think we just got to keep testing and keep studying i mean i wouldn't personally want to be in the water with a five meter great white mm. uh with you know i'd give them that space you know all right my <laughs> word tom now tom uh, tom yeah. as a surfer can i get a shark shield from a surfboard now and if i can or i can't what type of cost is it going to be it's basically duck a small battery pack which goes on behind your tail pad and then it's ingrained in the board are they available and what's the cost going to be well it's going to be around the 400 mark we're going to have a uh a uh a device uh that will it'll be a a decal will you be able to uh swap the electronic electronic device which charges up the the antennas uh, which are de- uh, decals on the bottom of the board, yep. uh, which are you know tied into the device and in the back of the the kick pad and the back of the actual grip pad. I don't know you know the the grip pads you have on the on the board, mm-hmm. uh, and that device is chargeable, uh, so you'll be able to buy them separately. So you can be able to uh, decal your bo- your uh, each and every board, if or whatever your favourite boards are, at about ninety nine dollars. And right. then uh, you know have the other device you swap through the through each board. So uh, Be- best four hundred yeah. bucks you could uh, ever spend, I reckon. Yeah. To be honest, Tom. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, I think uh, well, hopefully we'll have them out by the end uh, or end of August, at the beginning of September. Well, so, that, uh, Tom uh, J Bay starts tomorrow, and obviously uh, Mick Fanning, as we know, I, I know that he's already been out there, but at the actual tournament. Mm-hmm. Starts tomorrow. Are any professional surfers using this right now? Uh, I don't know. There's no one yet that has this device on their board. Uh, 
What, what do you think of uh, – it's been a, a remarkable run for Mick Fanning. Obviously, pulled out of the World Tour this year, Tom. But the fact that he's going back there saying that he wants to give back to the people of Jeffreys Bay and he's prepared to go out there once again, it's it's a big story. It's a remarkable story, really. And the good news is coming through these ankles okay, so he'll be right for round one. Oh, it's an ex- extraordinary story, man, really. Uh, what a, an amazing display of kind of, um, you know, just cool comment. I mean, really, last year, in the middle of a final – to have that sort of thing display of the rest of the world for, for Mick to actually have to water off a shark <laughs> in the middle of a fight. I mean, really, but the shark couldn't have picked the worst person, really, if he thought he was going to get a bite. Um, because, you know, Mick was right at the top of his game. He was so sharp. He was like, you know, moving on to a you know, really tough final against Julian Wilson, who also is extremely brave in the situation. Um, but I think with... Um, you know, the shark, you got a guy that was just finely tuned. He was like, he knew, he had almost six cents. You could see in the footage that he could actually almost feel the shark behind him before he got him. So it was pretty, and that's what happens to us when we're at that level. And I think with, with uh, you know, Mick at the moment, he's looking really sharp. I mean, he he's had a bit of a break. He and I had a huge year last year. Uh, he's looking super relaxed. I mean, I'm, when a person like Mick's super relaxed like this, watch out. <laughs> That's it. That's it, Tom. Yeah. We can't yeah. wait to see him surf tomorrow. Thanks for jumping on the line, mate. Uh, we really appreciate your time. I'm going to keep an eye out for a shark shield, and the first day it rolls into the shop, I'm going to get one. Thanks a lot, Tom. Beautiful. Great to speak no, to Tom Carroll. Thank you. He was he was the first world champion or first surfer that I'd ever heard of. Tom Tommy Carroll. Carroll. Yeah, yeah he's he's, uh, he's been through some times and he's come out the other end. And uh, well, I think four hundred bucks is uh, probably a pretty good investment, Ducky boy. Oh. A massive grudge contest uh, took place yesterday in the United States of America. Only Ducky in America. Boy, Only uh, annual Fourth of July hot dog eating contest. Now Joey Jaws Chestnut, prior to last year, had won eight straight titles. Last year he was usurped from his throne by Matt the Megatoad Stoney in one of the greatest upsets in the history of American sport. Yesterday, they went head-to-head. Here's the closing stages. Go! It's the 100th anniversary, and we are underway. All right, Nine so- minutes, 15 seconds to go. Chestnut already to 10. Stoney three behind him. He's looking at a 12-dog minute. It's all about Chestnut. It's all about the mustard belt, and it's all about the record now. 10 seconds to go. He's got to get that one down. There we go with 69. Final seconds. He got it. And he got 70. The most he hot dogs. 70. The most hot dogs ever eaten in the corner of Surf and Stillwell Avenues by the greatest eater in the history of mankind. Duck, he ate 70 hot dogs and buns in, tw- in 10 minutes. But more than that, as you heard, he had a 12-dog minute. Uh, 12 dogs <laughs> in one minute. It's extraordinary. And uh, I've seen a little bit of footage on the TV. They're not – these guys are not massive no. guys. And But let's be honest, the American wieners – uh, wiener. They call them a wiener, the little hot dog. They're not. They're not our hot dogs. Like they're. They're, they're not know, footy franks. No. Well, we you get a hot dog at the footy here, and you you know you saw what seven seven that'd be about seven inches long, eight inches know. long, something. Well, we're anyway, in dangerous buns, territory our, here. No, but our real buns, dangerous territory. Smaller, no, is what you're our saying. buns, our buns, and our hot dogs are massive. They are, and they they've. I've been to America, and I've had a hot dog, and they they're are littler. a smaller version. Of the Australian hot dog. Could you do a 12-dog minute? No, I couldn't do a 12-dog minute. <laughs> That's an impressive I do statistic. Like, I do love a hot dog. Though. I love a good hot dog. Was anyone in your kangaroo's day really good on the tooth? Uh, 
Well, Fridge, uh, Fridge Roberts. Big Fridgey Roberts. He would, have been, uh, he would have been pretty good at the hot dog <laughs> he comp, could have I reckon. done a 12-dog minute? Mick Martin would have been pretty good on it. Okay. Uh, he, uh, they, he was, uh, you know, we talk about these interstate clubs struggling, you know, when they go because uh, the of the buffet. buffet. I'm sticking by that. They <laughs> the, eat too the, much the at the buffet. The theory was the yeah. buffet's there. They, they eat, eat too much at the buffet the night before and they go out and they play terrible. Well done to Joey to Chestnut. Any man for mine that can do a 12-dog minute is right at the top of his game. You've got a fascination with the weather. We were just explaining to you that it stays warmer when it's cloudy, Duck, because it's like a big doona covering oh, the earth okay. and it keeps the heat in. Oh, very simplistic way of describing the weather. Thanks. Uh, Bruce Cater, <laughs> NBA manager, to join. Are you getting snaky at me? We're no, finally, after being, seven or eight being days. a little facetious. All right. Uh, Bruce is on the line and he can have a chat with us now. Bruce Cater is there. Sorry, Bruce, we wasn't sure if we had with you. Uh, had you. Good morning. How are you, Brucey? How are we? Good, mate. How are you? Yeah, great to speak with you. Now, listen, you manage some of Australia's biggest basketball stars uh, that have been in the news in recent times. Firstly, Matty Delavadova. Extraordinary when I saw you the other night at Crown, and Matty was doing a function with us, and he said, listen, my sister's over there with the phone. If it rings, I might need to take it because it's free agency time opening at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Tell us, how does a situation like that go down? Because I know you're, you're governed by certain NBA rules, but it's an extraordinary scenario for a couple of boys on your books. Yeah, I mean, look, um, it is an extraordinary scenario, but I think, you know, anyone who plays in the NBA is aware of what can happen um, during this time of the year. So, you know, it's it's a business at the end of the day. Um, both boys are aware um, and, and know exactly what goes on. So, yeah, it, it sort of just, it just plays out as it does. Um, and you guys probably hear about it sometimes at the same time as what the players do. So does Matt get a phone call actually from the club? How does the logistics of it actually work out, Bruce? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I could talk for, you know, an hour about how it all works out. But, yeah, in very simple terms, that's exactly what happens. Uh, The interested clubs obviously call Matthew and then they have a conversation. Um, You know, they both obviously have questions of each other. um, And then they obviously go back and then, you know, decisions are made of whether an offer is going to be... Uh, made or not. You're obviously working in a highly professional environment. As I said, you, you, you're governed by certain NBA rules, but when a figure comes to you for Matty of 38 million US dollars, what's your initial thoughts? Smile. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I guess when you, I mean, look, that we have guys in the US that work with us uh, on this stuff as well. So, um, you know, it's obviously something that, um, I mean, you're aware of the numbers because it's of the league that you operate in. Um, and I guess what you ultimately try to do is you just want to make sure that no matter what happens that, you know, um, these guys are able to get their true market value. So I guess that's, you know, you're the primary thought of anyone involved in these types of call, uh, lot negotiations. Is there a Jerry Maguire moment outside the locker room when you two hug and say, wow, because I know you've been with these boys from the start. We've achieved what we're ever hoping to achieve and you've now set your family up. Congratulations, young man. Is there some of that emotion actually comes into what is really a, a pretty heavy business deal? Um, look, I guess you're very happy for the guys. I mean, obviously, um, you know, you want them to... Um, set themselves up and their lives up, you know, and no question about it, there's definitely a smile on your face, especially mm. when you know the work that goes into what they've done throughout the journey um, as kids and then also as young adults and then, you know, as, as men, um, you want them to do well. So, yeah, there's no doubt you have a smile on your face. 
What about Andrew? Because he's a bogan I'm talking about. He's obviously a little bit of a different kettle of fish, so to speak. He probably didn't want to leave. He's now moving on to make way. How do you, how do you go about um, – he's going to Dallas. How do you go about um, talking to him? And I, know, I believe he's a business partner in, in the management group also. Yeah, look, from those types of, you know, situations, I mean, as I said, we have um, an agent in the US who also works with us um, and certainly works with Andrew, and that's their conversations that obviously through the night that those guys have. There was a lot of concern, obviously, Bruce, when Andrew uh, had the injury in the NBA finals, whether he'd be able to play for the Olympics. From what I'm hearing, he's recovering quicker than maybe we expected, and there's a real positive glint on us. Uh, on his situation as far as the Olympics go? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, you always remain optimistic. And I think, you know, um, I've said this once before, you know, in the last few weeks that, you know, Andrew does everything he possibly can um, to get himself right. Um, He's the ultimate professional when it comes to preparing his body um, and obviously recovering his body from injury. So, you know, I mean, whether, you know, he's ahead of schedule or on schedule, I think it's really early to tell. Um, you know, time, we'll know in a few weeks' time exactly what that situation is. Um, but, you know, he does everything he possibly can to get himself right. So, you know, I think everybody, um, including, you know, Andrew himself, you know, would love to see him um, get back and, and obviously play in Rio. Given that he's had so many injuries, though, does Dallas, his new team, can they override the fact um, if he wanted to play for Australia? No, I wouldn't think so, Wayne. No, I think, you know, Andrew's decision and commitment has been made. So, no, I wouldn't thought so. Bruce, we appreciate your time. Just as we let you go, are you any closer to signing up LeBron James? <laughs> yeah, that, I think that might be a bit tougher ask, Howie. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate it. I'll be around for the party if you ever do, Bruce. Thanks for your time. Bruce Gator, One Management Group and Consulting. I find it fascinating, the money that is being thrown around there. And Bruce, he'd be a bloke you'd love to have on his side because he's very measured, he's very well connected. I think he's everything you want. Yeah, absolutely. Much earlier this morning, Duck, at about three minutes past six, we were just reminiscing on some of the absolute crap jobs we'd both done. Yeah, we'd had, uh, well, I haven't had as many as you, but painting tyres black with a sponge. <laughs> Wasn't a highlight of my career. Not, not, a, uh, not a great job. And Rosie and I were saying that we're, we're living the dream. Yeah. We've, you know, she's got her dream job and, you know, me, uh, I guess talking about footy for a job is, uh, is pretty good. But, Howie, you yep. have finally, now you've done a lot of work. You've interviewed Kelly Slater, you've... Arnie, you've done all sorts of things, mm. but you've finally got your absolute dream job. I have, Duck, and I can't believe it. On Monday, or on uh, on Sunday, uh, I call the footy. I call the footy on Saturday night with Triple M. Sunday, call the footy on Sunday afternoon in the Twilight Game with Barry Denner, and then Sunday night, host the Grand Prix for 10. Monday morning, Duck, I get on a plane, and I go from Melbourne to Sydney, Sydney to Los Angeles, Los Angeles to New York, New York to Panama City, Panama City to Georgetown, Guyana, where I arrive at 10 a.m. in the morning after a 43-hour flight. And at 6.30 that night, I get to sit down and commentate on the Caribbean Premier League cricket, which is going on at the moment. How good is that, Rose? This That's a, so good. A month, a month in the West Indies. Um, one whole month. One. 2020 one month. cricket. Yep. And who who's going there with you? Because it, it, let's be honest, if you're over there by yourself and you don't know too many people, it can be pretty flat. 
Yes. Are, are there any uh, other no, mates or no? You no, don't, I you don't, don't know anyone. I haven't worked with. Well, I've worked with Danny Morrison. He's one of the commentators there. But I sit. We'll sit in the box. I start in Guyana the first night, and that night I sit in the box with the great Damien Martin, who I've never met, Australian middle order batsman, and Ian Bishop, the West Indian quick, who's the bloke that knocked out Justin Langer on debut. I'll tell you something about Guyana before you go over. Good, there. Good, because I don't know much about. Well, it. they have giant otters. <laughs> They have Harper Eagles, which are two of the rarest species that can be found in Guyana. So you can go and just have a look at a couple of those. Right. So, you know, okay. you're talking about if I'm struggling to massive, sleep. Massive otters. So, yeah, anyway, I just thought I'd give you a little bit of info. Oh, I spend uh, only one they night in Guyana. Also, have one of the largest spiders on the earth, the, Goli- the Goliath bird eating spider. I've seen these things. Right. Have you, have you seen them? I haven't seen a Goliath bird eating spider. They no. are, well, they're bigger than. Bigger than my hand, and right. my, my hand's reasonably big. I know you can't see it out there, radio people, but how I'm showing you right here. Big enough for a spider. They are massive. They eat they eat birds. Right. Hence the name bird-eating spider. Well, I hope you find one in your bed. Well, looking at the hotel I'm in, I reckon there's probably going to be several in my bed. So, I, only so one they, night in Guyana. So they're not putting you up in no, the that, best No, it's places. a nice hotel. And then uh, after that, we fly to Jamaica. I've got eight days in Jamaica. How, how do you get a gig like this? Because I know that you've done a lot of it now, mm. and you do Australia, and you've also been over overseas previously. Do they just give you a call well, now? I, 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 got, I got a phone call from a bloke um, saying, do you want to spend a month in the West Indies doing the cricket? I thought he was taking the piss, to be completely honest. <laughs> I thought it was one of my mates. Um, yeah, they, they ring. It's run by a company called IMG, and they've got the television rights. Um, they'd obviously seen the Big Bash. Um, so, yeah, a, a week in Jamaica. Then they're playing seven games in Florida. So we go to Fort Lauderdale, nice. um, which will be interesting. And then it finishes in St. Kitts. But I was watching a bit of it on the telly yesterday, um, and Chris Gale made 100. Off forty-four balls, wow. um, big crowds. So really, he's playing well, to it. Chris Gale, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He's a star. Chris is he? Gale. Is he? Is he coming back to Australia? Oh, he, hasn't, he hasn't officially signed with a team yet. So, um, be interesting to see how we go there. I mm. I did hear a rumor during the week. Now, this is only a rumor that uh, the the most popular man in Western. I'm going to. Well, oh, I got halfway there now. The most popular popular man that plays in Western Australia in the Big Bash by the name of Brad Hogg. I heard a rumor, definitely not a done deal, that he may end up playing for one of the Victorian sides in the Big Bash this year, which would be extraordinary. Mm. Possibly the team that plays at Etihad Stadium, because they've won one, haven't they? The Perth, yeah, yeah. they made the final just about every year. They're yeah. unbelievable. So. Uh, when you're in round 18 doing the GWS versus the Gold Coast Suns, I'll send you a little yeah, postcard thanks. from Jamaica. Done a little bit of research in the break. Yes. The Goliath bird-eating spider, I said as big as my hand, put <laughs> both of my hands together, right? and that's the size of this spider. And they're, they're like Daddy Longlegs over there. You just find them everywhere. Well, yeah. so I'm I, concerned about my trip to the Caribbean Premier League come now. come across a couple. <laughs> if I do, I'll bring one home for us. Uh, Duck, I've been, uh, it's not often that I have to come into work every day. Um, at what we're doing this week. And it stretched my wardrobe a bit and it got me thinking. You sort of look back and think, you look at your dad or your grandpa or the bloke next door that's a bit old, you think, why why does he wear those terrible clothes? And when you actually get to that point as a person, I I think I'm starting to approach it. I think, really? Yeah. So you're at that age where you just don't care anymore. Well, no, I do care, but I I think, am I going to go and buy another $400 pair of jeans and jump or am I just going to hang with what I've got? And I'm becoming more prepared to hang with what I've got. The thing about the thing about fashion, Howie, mm. is you've you've got to own it. Everyone has a different sense of what is fashion yes. and what's not. And generally, spring, spring carnival. We are very lucky here because spring carnival, the fashion just comes out, and everyone 
turns up in uh, all their beautiful dresses and great suits and everything else. And, and I've always thought, and I got taught this by a very good friend of mine, you, you just have to own it. If you walk into a room and you're confident with what you're wearing, then generally for whatever reason, even if you, you initially look at it and go, wow, I, I couldn't wear that, but hang on that looks good because the person is owning it and feels confident in it. You can tell someone that doesn't feel confident. You can tell mm. someone that get has been talked into wearing that sort of uh, real bright blue suit at the races. Like Jeff Edelston. Yes. Oh, well, exactly. Well, 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 well hold, hold that thought. Hold that thought. Yep. I bring you to the front page of the age today, a gentleman by the name of David Haynes, who is one of those fellows that's walking along the street and they take a photo of him and then discuss what he's wearing. Now he's wearing overalls backwards. Uh, he's wearing a pink beret He's wearing a little bag and sort of a black skivvy. He is a, I'm quoting him now, a web developer, mystery blogger, and jazz kitten. What's a jazz kitten, Rosie? Uh, somebody who's really into jazz. Okay, thanks for know. that explanation. It's, it's, it's cooler than a cat, I think. His overalls by Oshkosh Bagosh, uh, he found in a vintage store in Tokyo. That's, isn't that a kid's brand? Well, he's, only, he's, he's only a little chap. He admires the style of Trotsky in leather, Albert Einstein and John Coltrane. So that that's who he's channeling, Duck. He, he might be owning it, but uh, no, nah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not buying it. Well, he said he would never be caught dead in neo hippie bush doof couture, a small inefficient beanie. Uh, Rosie, you like small inefficient beanies. You wear those frequently. Cannot get enough of a small inefficient beanie. And to just summarise his overall look, my style is bucolic. I don't think that's a vegetable. It's rural. Right. It's a wanky way of saying Okay. Rural. My style is bucolic, socialist with improvised elements like jazz. This bloke is owning what he's wearing. Yeah, he's owning it, but it's not working. What? <laughs> I would not wear it painting the house. Well, or I, wouldn't wear it, like... I wouldn't wear it under the house with a couple of those spiders we've been talking about. Well, the fact that he's wearing the <laughs> overall backwards is. is an interesting statement. You said you need to feel confident. Well, what what a, do you feel a, most? Okay, a great Go example. On. I feel, like I said, always overdressed. Now, we we got dressed, you and I, for the spring carnival last year. For, well, we did. For, uh, was it Derby Day? Or, yes. Yeah, it yes, was Derby, Derby Day. Day. And Sammy and Co. Uh, yes. Good luck to Sammy and Co. on uh, Chapel on Street. Chapel Best Street there, in Melbourne. Who dressed us. But I remember we both turned up at the same time yes. and he was fitting us out. Yes. And he bought out a, he bought out a little bit of uh, colour. A bit Rosie. of me, me, me type of suit, no, Rosie. A little oh, really? bit of colour. Like he, he bought out. So I had a more of a, a brighter blue suit, even though it was Derby Day, which is traditionally black and white. Yeah. And I felt comfortable in that. And that's why I said, yeah, I'm happy to wear that. And my tie had a little bit of colour in it. And uh, once again, I felt as soon as a little bit of colour for the old Howie here, no. who's now turning into that old man that won't <laughs> that's wear right. That's right. anything, um, Howie just said, nope, nope, nope. He said no to everything until it was just plain Jane. There you go. But more importantly, you felt comfortable. I, though, I did. Uh, my, my, I feel most comfortable in a pair of thongs. In which clothing item are you most comfortable? I do. Uh, yeah, probably Probably jeans, shirt, and a jacket these okay. days. I, I like it, but a t-shirt. I, I just a good t-shirt. Well, what's your biggest fashion mistake, Doc? Biggest fashion mistake, uh, like I said, anything that you don't feel comfortable in is a mistake. Oh, I saw so you. So if you walk out, if you walk out the door and you go, "Oh, is this not quite right?" It's not going to work. Then it's not going to work. Oh, that, I, I saw you rocking a pair of jeans the last couple of years. Real busy, sort of tight numbers with lots of seams, no, and I'm, I'm not the, sure they were the better. <laughs> tighter the better. If you've got it, Howie, I've, all, <laughs> I've always said, if you've got it, you flaunt it. Winter breakfast. Oh, come on, Doug. Come on, Guru. Give us a spell. We'll go straight to the Seven Network as they're about to announce the flag bearer. To all of Australia. This is Kitty Chiller. And I know we'll take on this role with the commitment and passion that has been the hallmark 
of their career to date. The athlete I have selected as the Australian Olympic team opening ceremony flag bearer for Rio is Anna Mears. Well, well done to Anna Mears and thanks for Seven for bringing us that live. We might hear from Anna shortly. A lot of uh, I, I, I there from Kitty about the selection she's made. She said, I selected. Yeah, yeah, she did. Obviously did it completely no on her, her own. But uh, listen, you, you talked to me during the week about who you thought I should be and Anna Mears is an absolute superstar. Bit of in that as well. Well, 2004 <laughs> Athens gold medalist, 2012 London Olympic gold medalist, silver in Beijing and a couple of bronze as well in Athens and London. And Duck just epitomises what it's all about in many ways. Yes. No, well, very well deserved. And uh, uh, you picked it, Howie, uh, earlier in the week. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Uh, let's hear from Anna Mears again as she talks to Mark Beretta on Lord, Channel 7. I would Live. like to thank Kitty for this opportunity. Um, it, I don't think it changes anything that I'm going to do. I just go about my business like I always do and it should look after itself. All right, let's talk about you. What are you going to do in Rio? I'm going to be competing in three events, the Team Sprint, Sprint and the Kieran, riding with Steph Morton in the Team Sprint. I'm looking forward to that and ripping up the boards. <laughs> <laughs> Might there just be another Olympic gold there somewhere? Uh, I always go into races to win them, but yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. And she was speaking yesterday, Duck, about the fact she's fitter and stronger than she's ever been before. I was showing you some vision on YouTube, mm. which you need to describe to the people out there. She oh, the, is quite the an box athlete. Jump. I'm not sure of her exact height, but the box jump that she was doing which, was... Which involves what, Duck? Well, you stand stationary about half a metre off the particular box at a particular height, which was probably over half of her height, and you just leap onto it. Now, the key to it is you land softly. You have to land cat-like on the top. That's the key to uh, to the jump. And she, uh, yeah, it was quite quite astonishing to see what she could do, the power that she generates from that position, and that's why she's... Uh, She's so good and uh, very well deserved, and, yeah. and she'll do it. Uh, she'll do it very proud. Bro- broke her back, duck in America yes, a few years a ago. Overcome all sorts of injuries. So, congratulations to Anna Mears again. Thanks to the Seven Network for bringing us that live. A bit of uh, footy kicking around, duck. A couple of questions I have for you. Uh, Jay Clark reporting that the uncontracted twenty-three-year-old Lin Jong was seen down at the Holden Centre at Collingwood just having a little bit of a tour, which is all uh, well and good and legal within the rules of the game. Well, if it's in the rules of the game, uh, good on him. He's uh, He's been a fringe player at the Bulldogs. They've got a they've got a lot of depth, the Bullies, as we've noticed this year with the amount of injuries that they've had. They've been able to cover them, and he's been one that's been in and out. He's been in and out for the last couple of years. So if he thinks he'll get more of an opportunity at the Pies, then certainly you have to... Uh, Go and have a look at uh, all your options. Yes. So I have no problem with that whatsoever. More stories floating around about the Brisbane Football Club. Uh, Mark Robinson reports that Lewis Taylor is asking for half a million bucks a year. There was a story last week that Tommy Rockliffe was asking somewhere in the Lewis, region of 800000 Well, Lewis uh, shouldn't be asking for that sort of money on his form. Is um, he asking that because he wants to get out of the footy club? Well, the, the thing about it, Howie, I've, I've got a... I've got a theory that oh here every, we go Rose every Duck's club every club has to pay ninety five percent of the salary cap. I yep. believe that you should have a five year window if you're a Hawthorne, for instance, who should be paying a hundred percent because they've won the last three flags. Mm. But then you've got a side like Brisbane who are pretty ordinary yet they have to pay their players the same amount as Hawthorne have to pay theirs, which I just find you know wrong. Uh, what Brisbane should be able to do is to say, okay, well, right now we're performing here. And they should be able to bank that money 
and pay that at such time as when they want to become a better side or if they need to spend that money right. to go and get other players to become a good side. Not a bad theory. Because it's just, it's ludicrous to think that they're getting the, these guys, you know, are getting paid the same amount and asking for the same amount. I mean, this is why Hawthorne and Geelong and, you know, and other sides have been such good teams because they don't demand money before they uh, before they've earned it before their reputation and before they've played good enough footy for long enough to earn that sort of money talking about the hawks uh we've been having a bit of a casting our eye on the draw moving forward and the hawks well they've got a reasonably tough draw they still need to play sydney up in round 17 at the scg they take on the likes of west coast at subiaco in round 22 and round 21 they take on north melbourne at the mcg so they've got some pretty tough games the hawks they have, as have the Kangaroos. I think it's the, the Hawks. Yeah, yeah, the Kangas, yeah, they Hawk, do. The Hawks and the Kangas have got a, a tough run home. Um, and then you look at GWS, who have got a, an easier run uh, in the second part of the year. So a lot of people are actually tipping GWS, maybe, to finish minor premiers. In actual fact, Crown Bet, um, I think Crown Bet, well, if it's not, we'll say Crown Bet, mm. um, have them second favourites to be minor premiers. Geelong also have... You know, they've got a tough game, obviously, on Friday night against uh, against Sydney. That's a big game that'll be uh, on seven, which both of us will be covering. Yep. Um, that's a big game for either one of those because if you want to finish on top, I think that's the that well, that's this is these are the sort of games, these 50 50 yep. games that you just have to win if you're going to finish. In Do the you top pay two. any credence to those that say GWS, even if they win a couple of finals? will struggle when they get, and if they get to the main event, that you have to have played a grand final or won a grand final or played finals to one finals. Do you have any credence to not, that or not? Not a subscriber. Right. No. No, I, I think Nor that, I. Uh, you know, they've, they've actually got a premiership player on, on every line of their team. Stevie J, obviously, in the forward line. You've got Shaw in defence. And I'm trying to think who they've got in the middle of the ground. Oh, Mumford who's a premiership player. So they've got someone on each line that's actually won a flag and they're just such a young, confident group. Another little bit of a little bit of a test. They've flogged everyone at home. They've got Collingwood at home this uh, weekend. You'd expect them to win that one. Um, the easy draw on the way home, is that, a, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing for a young team going in maybe overconfident? They'll get a home final. There's no doubt about that. So I'm a, I'd, I'd, they are most certainly a chance to win it, as are every side in that eight. I think this is what makes this year so special and what I'm loving about the game this year, that it, uh, yeah, for the first time in a long time, we're not sitting here saying, oh, well, it'll be the Hawks. It'll be Could a team guys. outside the four win the premiership this yes. year? Yes. Okay. Yes. The other story that we debated talking about yesterday, and I said, mm, and you're a bit the, the same, was uh, the Kieran Jack story. It got a lot of coverage nationally because obviously also in Sydney that, that his dad, Gary, um, who's a lovely chap, uh, uh, a rugby league superstar and kangaroo superstar playing for his country. Tawdry, it's a bit uncomfortable to even bring up this one, to be honest, in some well, ways. It's a, fa- it's a family matter, unfortunately, for, for Kieran, is, you know, uh, social media. Stay off it. <laughs> I mean, that that's why it's become public, because family members have put stuff on social media, on Twitter, and it's just... You know that should be, all of that sort of stuff should be kept in house. Who wants to? Who who really? Do you really care whether? I mean, you know whether Kieran's partner is not getting along with Kieran's mum. I mean, it it's none of our business to put it on the front page. I mean, it, it's just terrible journalism. As well. the, I, I just don't. And even if it, even if, even if they did tweet it out, 
Is that front page news? Go into the it, supermarket. Is it, does, it head, does it head the news on all the TV stations? Well, it was yesterday. Go into the supermarket and have a look at any magazine at the checkout, and apparently that's what we do like looking at because that's all you see. Well, we don't. Well, it's, well, well no, but they're, they're not making those magazines because no one are buying them, are they? Um, the only it's thing that ridiculous. would concern me, and I, further to that very point, if I'm a Sydney fan, the only thing I'm thinking is, is this going to affect the way Kieran plays on Friday night? As a footballer that, you know, you've been through your... Well, your he's playing his 200th game. That's what it's all about, isn't it? It is. So do, do athletes get affected by this stuff that floats around in the ether around them before games of sport? It depends on the athlete. Okay. Never affected Warney. No, never affected Warney. That's true. And by gee, you had a bit floating around the ether as well. <laughs> Duck, we were talking earlier on this morning and I, uh, we were talking about dream jobs and I was telling you I was off to the Caribbean to do the cricket and I was stoked about it and then we started talking about the worst jobs we've ever had and you, you looked at me blankly as if you hadn't had many jobs and I started telling you about a job uh, in Footscray where it was a tyre recycling place and the tyres used to come in and they'd retread them, which wasn't my job. Uh, my job was to stand there and get a sponge and put it in some <laughs> black paint, hold the sponge against the tyre while the tyre spun round and it made the tyre black. So, so you were that little... Uh Nimrod, that uh, when I sort of picked my car up yes. from the detailer yes. and I looked at my car and went, oh, it's looking magnificent because of the, the black. Well, uh, I was the tyre blacker yeah. and uh, it was the world's worst job. <laughs> we used to start at eight o'clock and by 10 past eight, I'd had enough. One day, <laughs> one day the factory caught on fire and we got to go home at lunchtime. That was the career highlight for me at that particular I, venue. I, I, I just quickly, I forgot about a job that I had. I worked, never fail spring water. And uh, used to, have, I thought I was a sales rep until they uh, said it gave me a truck, which I'd never driven before. Smashed into a car on my first day, and then realised I had to carry the bottles up through the offices in the city. And I thought that was a little bit degrading, especially when you're walking through the offices and they go, "Here comes the never never boy." <laughs> yeah. Didn't did, like that. Did you use that to your advantage at all, or not being the never never boy? Well, we were discussing this, and you were saying, like, but then you started to roll out all sorts of different jobs that yeah, you but had along the way. The reason why, I, yeah, I, I realised that uh, I'm not sure they uh, clarify as jobs if they only last a week. <laughs> so, what type of <laughs> weekly jobs did you have? Well, I was a wool classer. A uh, wool classer? Now, stand by. <laughs> just stand by a minute there. He just drops in conversation, Rosie, that he was a wool classer. I've got right. some, hang on. I've got some questions here. What experience did you have as a wool classer well, going in? Well, I had none. Right. But so I got what, what, given the job as a wool classer. Which is doing what? Well, that's what I thought. I thought I was standing there sort of going through the wool to determine <laughs> what sort of was good wool and bad wool. <laughs> How do you determine what's good wool well, and bad wool? I don't know. I thought they were going to teach me while I was there. But then when I went in and they basically gave me a hook and said, move that, these big bundles of wool move that over to there with the hook. And I said, I've got to play footy tonight. And they said, well, I don't care. And I said, well, I don't care. And I walked out. <laughs> that was the end of that, that was job? It. That was the end of that job. What and I got, and, and my, myself and uh, I'm sure he won't mind me asking, he lives in South Australia anyway, uh, Stephen Hamilton, who got dropped. Wayne Schimmelbush dropped us after that game for not having a job. So you got yeah. dropped for not having a job. Right. Now they all obviously don't have jobs. Is there another job? I, I heard a rumour someone was telling me once you had a job that was involved sort of a, a bit of a, a floor and a trucking situation where you possibly just walked around and uh, exerted the fact that you were a high-profile kangaroo player and you weren't prepared to sort of muck in with the boys. Um, that was eagle lighting, Peter Darouche. <laughs> it just keep coming, Rose. Yeah, but that, all classer, that, lighting. That didn't last long either. Well, what was eagle lighting? What well, happened down there? Eagle, well, I, I, I did a pop-off. <laughs> <laughs> You can't do I that. did a pop-up in the factory, mind you. So right. It's not exactly, I didn't do it in the office. 
and the uh, the factory manager didn't like it. So I said, well, see you later. So you got sacked for farting. <laughs> no, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get sacked. I walked out because he didn't like it. Duck, you've got a bit of a public Howie. service announcement. I have, Howie. Uh, September 10, uh, Fashion Aid, which has been going uh, on for quite a number of years now, and they always support a, they generally support a different charity every year. And this year it's uh, the Leukemia Foundation, which is a charity that uh, Hugh Jackman is heavily involved in. So once again, that's September 10. It's at uh, Crown, uh, just down the road here. It's a, uh, it's a great night. All of the uh, all of the big people there. It is, uh, and we've already spoken about fashion. Now, as I said, it's fashion aid, so they have uh, everyone come up and down. It is a fantastic night, very entertaining. Who's who of uh, Melbourne is there, and uh, you might learn something actually, how if you come along. So, how do people get, get you, How do people get involved? Well, fashion aid. Just go on, uh, go online. Just go online. Fashion aid. It's September ten. Um, look it up and uh, and book a table because it's a it's a great night. Actually, I'll get you a, I'll get you a seat on the Mercedes Benz Berwick. Oh, table, you, who were one of the major sponsors there. That's very kind. So of you, uh, I'll you get boy. you a seat. Actually, you and Erica. Okay. You oh, and Erica. Wow, that'll she'll, and uh, she'll, she'll that. uh, frock up, and I'll get you a suit from Sammy and Co. And we'll, <laughs> we're, we're all sorted. And a Mercedes from Mercedes Benz Berwick. Well, uh, I'm not, not sure I can sort okay. that for you. Uh, well, you got that text. I just got uh, the first ever text I've ever received from one of my children, my six year old, who's just learning technology. The pickle skyzy has just sent me a text. Dear Daddy, exciting news. My tooth is wobbly with an emoji. And which is beautiful. Oh. And I asked you how much you're... Oh, actually, I hope she, she's listening. She probably is listening. Oh, well, I better not say. Well, no, you can. Well, you say, how, how, much much? Well, tooth fa- how much does the tooth fairy leave? How, well, what's see, a good, what, what does the tooth fairy leave these days? Well, since putt butt's ten bucks a pop, I guess you can't go with twenty cents anymore, can no, you? No, no. What, what do oh, well, you think? You, a fiver? You, yeah, I, I think a fiver for your first tooth would be. Uh, that's not five cents, Howie. No, five dollars. That's a note. Uh, what, uh, she she's shattered because all the other kids are losing their teeth, and kids are like want to be the other teeth. And she wakes up every day and says, "Do you think my tooth tooth's loose? Do you think my tooth's loose or not?" <laughs> and it's finally coming <laughs> there, loose. There was a great episode on Modern Family where the uh, the two guys who have adopted the little girl, she. Um, she lost her tooth and they accidentally put a hundred under there. And then for oh, 100. Each, they accidentally put a hundred. They thought it was a dollar. And then they uh, realized that, oh, hang on, we're going to have to go with this. How do we ask for the, <laughs> say that the tooth fairy has made a mistake and we can't go with that. And it was a, it was a great episode anyway. What, uh, I don't what, know how we got there. What, what would you be dishing out, Ella? It's funny, these things. You can't explain. Well, the tooth fairy generally is, that has found Ella and she's lost a fair few teeth because she's now ten, mm. but uh, five, five, five bucks. Yeah, okay, five it's bucks. Funny. but that's but that's not for everyone. It, I'm not, that's just what uh, her tooth fairy can afford. <laughs> well, there's different strato classes of tooth fairies, well, is there? I think so. Yeah. Isn't it funny that people in their cars now are at work listening to this that don't have kids think why are these two people banging on about it? And everyone that have got kids, the love you have for your own children is something you can't explain to those that aren't. In there. It's just no. unexplainable, isn't it? It is different love. Um, little uh, Charlotte, when do you think she'll lose her first tooth? Um, wouldn't have a clue. Okay. All, all come, well, they all come at different times. And actually, she hasn't got as many teeth as what she should have by her age because she was ten weeks premature. So, you know, her teeth are still coming through slowly. Whereas she goes to um, Nido down the road here, and all the other kids are, you know, their chompers are all out, and she's got enough to to hurt when okay. she latches on. But well, by the uh, time hers fall out, it'd be twenty five bucks a pop. <laughs> <laughs>